Good morning, we're here with uh, Daniel Major of GoVX Uranium, listed on the TSX Venture Exchange in Canada. So good morning, Daniel. Morning. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. And I think you're going to take us through your uh, most recent PowerPoint presentation. Yep. yep. So over to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think just kind of a background and the first page really of our presentation kind of sets out what this is all about. It's a uranium company. Yep. What is different is it's a development uranium company and it's all in Africa. So really, that, that is the bit you're looking at, really, of, of GoVX to start with. Um, we went into Africa simply because Africa has been one of the major uranium-producing regions for a long time. I mean, Niger started producing uranium in 1971. Mm. It's produced about 8% of the world's uranium since then. A third of all light bulbs in Paris are driven by Niger and uranium. So, you know, that kind of gives you a context mm. of the importance of the thing. The other thing we like about being in Africa is that permitting pragmatism that sits in Africa. When you've got countries where 60 to 70% of their exports every year are commodities, mm. they drive commodities. If you've got countries where commodities are only 5% of GDP, less impact. So, for example, in Niger, we got our project permitted in six months. We also have a fully permitted project in Zambia. Now, that's important because if you're looking at some of our competitors in North America and the like, that can take you six to 10 years for permitting. Now, if you believe in the cycle of the uranium market, which we're seeing at the moment, where we're seeing improvement in prices, and we can go through that a bit later in the presentation, you want the companies who can turn that into cash flow. You want their projects turned to cash flow. You know, and also in the last cycle, the companies that were getting taken out were the companies that were at the end of their debt cycle. They were ready to build. The guys who wanted the offtake were taking them out at that point. So. Being able to permit, have a pipeline of projects, that's what GoVX is all about. So we've got three projects, mm -hmm. one in Niger, next to the infrastructure called Manuel. Mm -hmm. uh, it's where all of that uranium came from in Niger. The second project is in, in Zambia, um, Batanga. Uh, as they've already permitted. And then the third project is in Mali. It's a sort of late stage exploration play. All of those have got the technical studies done on them. Um, two of them are public in the case of Matanga and in Matawela. In the case of um, Philea, there has gone to PFS, but it was never published. But we at least have all the technical information. So it just shows you the depth of money that's been spent on these projects and the questions that's been asked of it. So the plan for us is all about putting, firstly, Matawela into production mm -hmm. and then following it with Matanga and then much later coming through. Great. Thank you for that. So um, why don't we get into the PowerPoint itself? Yeah, all right, so key points, very large mineral resource. We've got over 260 million pounds of uranium in the ground, makes us one of the largest from a resource holding point of view. We turned our drill rigs off in Niger in 2013. Um, what I'm really saying to you there is we could more than double the resource size. We just didn't bother drilling it because in Niger, for example, which has 110 million pounds of its own, which about 100 is measured and indicated, if you can't make 100 million pounds work, why make it 200 million pounds? No point. So we effectively saved shareholder money by just not continuing to drill. So we have in Niger a 21 year mine life, in Zambia 11 years mine life. They're, you know, they're, they're already scalable mm -hmm. with a lot of upside. As I said, you already got the two projects. Yep. That permitting, absolutely key, which means when the price recovers, which we can see it happening now, we're able to action it. We're not gonna be sitting here trying to permit projects. and. We've already seen in this market what goes wrong if you haven't got the permit. You know, and so, so you're talking you're fully permitted. Fully permitted. I don't no more licenses, premises outstanding. All done. Got it. All okay. done. And we've seen in this market, in the London market, what happens if you don't get all your permits and you start, you know, notably Berkeley, which unfortunately right. for them didn't have what they needed at the, at the end of the day, and it, you pay the price. And so, in terms of timing, I mean, what, what are you what are you waiting for? What we set ourselves out was a strategy which said, look, you know, we've already got the PFS. We need to finish the final FS. We don't need the permits because they're done already. We need the debt and we need the offtake. So what we've actually started to do is move all of them together because the, the um, legal bit. So we're moving projects? the FS at the same. No. So we're moving the all on Maduela. Got it. Moving the FS forward already, mm -hmm. slowly, waiting for price to continue. There's, you know, the price has moved up to just under $29 as we speak today. Mm -hmm. um, we see that going higher. We need contract prices for this project at about 50. 
there's normally a $10 difference between spot and term. There isn't at the moment. So what are you saying? You're saying you're in a bit of a dip in terms of the pricing? So the price, well, basically cyclical? we're coming out of the dip. We, in the week, yeah. the uranium price troughed at about $17 a pound. Right. Beginning of last year, um, it was just over $20. And what's causing these cycles? Oh, now you're going into a big longer conversation. If you look at the big picture, in about 2004, well, let's go back and step you back even further. Up until 1985, the market was supplied. From 1985 through to 2011, the uranium market was in a supply deficit, massive supply deficit. What was feeding it was the surplus that had been built up by the Russian and the American right. governments prior to that, and they were basically feeding it into the market. In 2004, it was very clear that you needed to put more production into place. There was a sort of steady ramp up. Unfortunately, what happened in 2006 is the famous Cigar Lake flood. So that saw the uranium price in 2007 jump all the way to $130 a pound plus, wow. simply because ten, over 10% of the market had just gone offline. Mm -hmm. And it was an extraordinary was situation. It was an extraordinary right. situation. Right. So, and, and this is an industry that's affected by extraordinary situations. So the price came, comes down, and we're talking spot. Contract kind of went up to about 75, 80, mm. and just plowed on. In 2011, of course, we were still ramping forward Nuclear demand was growing everywhere around the world. There was no, the supply was struggling now to keep up. And between that 07, because of that price peak in 2011, a whole bunch of new projects were coming on stream mm. steadily. Um, Cigar Lake coming back as well. Um, the Kazakhs had been ramping up at the same time because they could with their um, yep. ISR projects and a whole bunch of yep. other different projects. And of course, in 2011, Fukushima happened. I remember it well. So Fukushima yeah. basically took out 16% of the world's demand within two years, gone, because all of the Japanese stuff disappeared. Um, the Germans started shutting down their reactors at the same time. And you then ended up with spare capacity all over the place, uh, particularly in the enrichment side as well. So you had all this underfeeding material coming through as well, and just went into big surplus. The governments were continuing to sell, particularly the American government who was trying to cover environmental liabilities of the past and he's put price pressure on all the way down. Projects were being shut down. The problem you got in our industry, of course, is that we have two prices. We have term contracts and spot contracts. Mm -hmm. So between 06 and 2011, a lot of the mining companies had got themselves long-term contracts driven by those high prices at the time. So they were selling, even though the prices were falling, they were still selling up here. Yeah. And we had to go through that pain of basically easing that out of the way that put more pressure on. So the it was a, a degree of elasticity that you would normally ex expect to have moved through quicker, didn't. That has now changed a lot. Okay. Um, so what you've seen is a lot of production shutdowns. You know, we're jumping forward onto the supply side of this, but... Does that, I mean, clearly a strategic mineral. Yes. Um, and heavily politically influenced. And is, is that, I mean, apart from the situation you just described, are you, do you see any sort of pressure from some of the global activity at the moment with regards to supply and demand? I mean, you um, no, I mean, the one thing about uranium uh, is there's a lot of it around. Right. It's a fairly common mineral. Okay. Um, the problem is getting it economically right. produced. Always. So yes, yes, you can have a lot of it, but if a lot of it's not actually worth digging out of the ground, yeah. then it just stays where it is. No, I mean, the, the big drivers, of course, are, are the secu security issues for people like the Chinese who don't actually have any real domestic production. They're going to produce about a million a year. Um, they need considerably more than that now and are ramping up demand for it. They've got the fastest build rate out on reactors. Mm. Um, you know, it's exponential, effectively almost doubling up every five years. Yeah, I think years. we're going to talk about that yeah. later in the, and, in the presentation and, 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 here. So that comes through. So no, I don't. There are minor issues in the US. We can come back to that as well. There's things sure. like the Section 232 stuff going on. Right, okay, fantastic. And, and again, you sort of touched upon countries like Germany and perhaps even yep. France looking to denuclearize. Yep. Um, but you're seeing a lot of demand elsewhere in the world. Exactly. Even, the, I guess, the J Japanese coming back online yep. Yep. to a degree, slowly, but, yep. but coming back online. Yep. Okay. Okay. And, and so you mentioned a phrase in here, which I just want to understand. You talk about a, a world-class sponsor group and obviously yep. Denison and Cameco and Ivanhoe, you know, well-known established names. So what's their actual involvement in you? They all came in as various components. Cameco was actually the first shareholder a major oh, right. shareholder of the company back in yeah. 2008. Um, they came in because Tim Getzelou runs Cameco at the moment. Sure. He used to run the Arriva mines next door right. to where we are. Okay. Um, so that's what they invested in early on. Um, was that I, sort of option money or what was It that? was at the time. Um, 
they've effectively stopped putting any new money in since then. But I think very much is going to be, you know, where we we see ourselves with our competitors and our, our sponsors particularly is that they won't make a decision of their next step, and logically so, until we effectively make that big final financial decision. Okay. Because it makes it doesn't change their game until the decision that we make to effectively become a producer. And when you say like that final decision, you're talking about clearly some kind of exit or, or getting or into production. Yeah. Are we ready to go into production? We need right. this amount of money. Do you now want to be, play the final game, which is do you want to be part of the production scheme Got it. that's going forward? Got because it. you know why do anything before that? Okay, well, let's let's um, start going through the presentation. So we go to page four. Yeah, it gives us four is, where it's pretty straightforward. It yep. just shows where we are. And I think, you know, as I said before, these are mining countries. Well, tell us a bit about those in terms of you know, things like mining code and yeah. know, rule of law, etc. Niger is is a very interesting one. Its mining code hasn't really changed in a very long time. They've mm. amended it a couple of times, but it's really just tidy ups. Hasn't really changed since 2006. The nice thing about the Nigerian mining code is that the tax code is built into the mining code. Is that based on like UK, French? Um, no, it's it's French law. Right. Okay. It's French law. Um, like most of West Africa, you get a free carry for the government. Um, Ten percent. Ten. In this case, and I know there's potentially. They can buy on. more, but it's done at fair market value. Right. There you go. Um, okay. So that is fine. But I think the key is that fact that that tax code is already built in there. So a lot of countries you see around the world where mining companies are struggling with them yeah. is because the tax codes just keep changing the whole time. Whether you look in East Africa, or, yeah. Or exactly, people yeah. are negotiating separate tax codes, like you got in the Congo. And then why has that guy got such a good deal when this party was in and that party, etc. So there's, there's no retrospective action expected here. There's some sort of no, consistency. No, no, they actually law. don't like you negotiating. We mentioned the political uh, influence. Yeah, we're in, the, we're in the Sahel. Yes. So it's nice and sunny. Yes, <laughs> so, it is. I think that, you know, I always get asked the Niger question, I mean, which is the security issue. I think, Absolutely. That, you know, look, we've, we're in an interesting part of the world, but I think the one thing that you have to take out of this meeting really is that Niger is actually an incredibly quiet place. Right. The murder rate in Niger, I discovered this the other day, is actually lower than the murder rate in the US per 100,000 people. I'm not sure what to think about that. Well, I know. <laughs> actually, you're more likely, and also the same article I was reading, you're more likely to get kidnapped in Europe than you are in Niger. So there you go. Those are international stats. I'm absolutely stunned. Yes. Uh, so, but this is perception, you see. Absolutely. Um, people's perception is this is a dangerous place. Uh, and that's, it's not, um, you know, it, it is a very strong um, secular Muslim country. Yeah. Um, it is very Western looking in its approach. Yeah. Works very strongly with its neighbors of Chad and Cameroon yeah. to basically police the Sahel. Um, the actions of, of Cameroon, Chad and Niger were very strong against Boko Haram when Nigeria mm. couldn't mm. deal with it itself. Yeah. They've been very strong in supporting Mali as well in yeah. its issues. Niger is a very quiet place to operate. That's, um, that's very comforting. Yeah, that's and, very comforting. and I'm very comfortable going there. I mean, and you have got to be sensible. I mean, there are risks. Mm. You know, you're in that part of the world. There are risks, you, but you've got to be sensible and pragmatic about the way you handle it. If you know what they are, you can mitigate. Exactly. Manage. One of the things we okay. have done very strongly, as well as a company and, and, and the, the, the founder, Govan Friedman, before I joined the company in 2009, what he did is institute a 100% Nigerian employment strategy that we have there. Excellent. So I don't have any expats working there, other Excellent. than occasionally we have our senior guys like myself or the chief geo go in, right. review what's going on, make sure everybody's happy. We commit to that kind of approach. Is that the extent of the CSR activity there? Or you oh no, we do lots of things. Uh, we've supported, right. we've gave a million pounds, uh, dollars years ago to famine relief. Uh, we've right. just done a whole village got destroyed by floods. Um, we provide water boreholes and uh, things. So in all of our, uh, we, uh, okay. education for girls in Niger is another strong thing for us as well. Uh, in Zambia, we do different things. Okay. Uh, that fit more appropriately to what the Zambians need. Okay, well, that's really interesting to know. Yeah. Um, you, so, so you know, big resources, as I said, about mm. 260 million pounds. One of the keys for us is that most of our resources is actually the measured indicated. Mm. So we've actually spent a lot of money upgrading this resource. So if you're looking at your peer groups, you know, some of them got big resources, but a lot of them are still inferred. Yeah. Now for us, that's one. You've got to drill seven more holes to get to a measure from what you had as an inferred in us. So it's mm. a lot of money still to be spent mm. to actually not gain anything other than 
reduce risk. Yeah. So you know that that is also key of where we stand as a company that a lot of money's already been invested here. So it's it like, so what sort of quantum are we talking about? Well, we've spent in this company today the whole package, mm. uh, including the ones of two hundred fifty million dollars. Wow. It's trading at fifty million dollar valuation. Okay. So a lot of sun capital. That's interesting, and that's all gone in the ground. Well, that's a lot of it's gone in the ground. Most of it's gone in the ground. All the right. technical work that's gone in. All the drilling that's being done. Yeah, because so look, looking at your burn rate, which again I think I've touched upon later, it's, it's quite low. Yeah. So it suggests. Well, basically. Have you been hunkering down in 2018? We've we, we, we hunkered on? down to a degree, and so far, point, you know, there's no point in spending money on drilling when we have big resources. Right. So the focus for us has been very much what can we do to make sure that these projects are ready for when the cycle turns? So that's what you you, you want. That's You're hunkering down to the green, saying, "Well, let's wait for the the, the market to come back, the price to well, pick it's, up." it's waiting, but not. It's getting ready at the same time. So oh, I'm not just okay. sitting there, you know, at okay. my home and feet on the desk, going, "Okay, what's the uranium price?" Yeah. No, we're we're doing things like, you know, what can I do to the process route mm. that changes it fundamentally enough to bring my operating costs down? Okay. What can I change to the mining process? What can I change to the power supply? Yeah. And doing the studies that are needed to be done now so that when we're ready to go, I, you know, we've already got a $25 cash cost. I'm not mm. satisfied with that. It's got to come down. So you're looking at optimizing the Optimizing, what can we do about the debt? So right. that, you know, there's no point in running into the market with a yeah. project and saying, well, I've got no money. Yeah. So we're already working with the debt providers to start structuring that debt so that if and when the market turns, which is what we think yeah. is happening now, we already have guys, you know, debt guys aren't fast moving. You no. know, they're not gonna write a check on Friday because no. you talk to them on Monday. Absolutely. You know, it's it's a nine month process. Yeah, so you've got to walk, work through that stage. So where are you in that? So are you beginning um, it? No, we've it? already got expressions of interest from a number of debt providers. Uh, and indicative terms? Uh, we are not indicative terms yet because you've got through the pathfinding process now. Mm -hmm. So we've got to get the MLAs done. Okay. Then we'll get the indicative terms. Okay. So, okay. you know, but the fact is, and you, you, you probably understand this yourself, Debt guys work differently from equity guys. Absolutely. Debt guys won't t allow you to use their name Slide. until you've been through the credit committee. Yeah. So once you kind of get to Slightly use their name. Slightly more cautious, yes. Yeah, they've already they've done the review of you. Yeah. They're comfortable to be associated with you. So that's going to be a big step forward for us is when we can come out and say, these okay. are the banks. We've got expressions of interest from a number. Got to go to the next step. Okay, so we go to page five. Um, yeah, that really just highlights the size of our resource relative to our peer group. But that, that's you're including measure indicated and inferred. What about the others? Is that on a measured basis? No, they're on everything. Everything. Yeah. Okay, it's like for like. It's okay. a like for like. Absolutely. So, okay, you know, that's impressive. Resource. That Especially is that. actually that is quite impressive. Yeah, and as I say, we could easily go a lot bigger just by turning our rigs back on. But as you say, no point. No point. It's okay. a big resource anyway. So what's the point? Okay. All right. Supply and demand. Uh, so, I mean, really, if you're investing in your uranium company, you've got to get this under your belt first. So help us understand you, this. You don't, you don't like the supply and demand. Look, let, let, let me put it really simple. Fukushima happened in 2011. Mm -hmm. Sharp decline in demand coming through. Had a knock-on effect because you had a ramp-up in supply coming through. Deal with the demand side first. Total nuclear generation of energy is now where it was in 2011. Okay. Okay, so we've got back, back around up. the curve. Okay. Right. We have got nine of the fifty reactors in Japan turned back on. Okay. They're probably they've indicated that twenty percent of their total generation should be from nuclear, which gives you about thirty. So that's written into law, or that's written into right. law. Okay. That's what they want okay. to do. Okay. So to get from nine. And, and you've got to get to 30. So there's a whole bunch of restarts. What's that equate to? Um, what from a, in what What's 20% equal? I mean, what's the Japanese model? Well, that's so you're going to have another, uh, of their 50, mm. they're, 50. they're currently at about okay. five. You, of their 50, that originally okay. Okay. 30 have to restart. Okay. And you're only at nine. So they're going to be about 10% of world demand when you finish. So you've got to go through those stages still. Expect that to happen. I think this year we probably won't see very many more restart, probably one or two towards the end, mm -hmm. just because they've got to go through the, the changes that need to be made to those reactors mm -hmm. um, by law, uh, and then expect them to continue through. So it's a slow process, yeah. but they are coming back. China continues with its very strong growth. I mean, two years ago, they were down at under 2% of total generation was nuclear. Mm. They're now about 4%. Their target as well is 20%. Wow. Okay, so strong growth coming out there. What the Chinese have done very well, though, is follow the French model from the past, 
which is standardization. Just standardize what you do and just keep C doing cookie it. Cookie cutter approach. Yeah, just okay. don't change it, keep yeah. doing it, keep making it. And they are basically as well domesticizing their process slowly. So they're taking the best technologies as they are best to do mm -hmm. and coming up with their own designs. Um, and, and that was one of the problems that happened after Fukushima as well as the Chinese stopped their phase three developments for a period of time where they did a full safety review themselves mm -hmm. of their own designs before mm -hmm. they went forward. So, you know, that, that has been a change. Right, okay. Uh, if you look at the other parts of the world, Europe um, as a whole uh, is pro-nuclear. Um, obviously the Germanic states, Switzerland, um, Germany, are struggling with it. Yeah. France have got a, currently a strategy of going from 75% down to 50%. They seem to keep kicking it down, the, down their can. Um, and the US, pretty, which is the biggest fleet out there, of the 440 reactors, just under 100 of the reactors sit in the US. That is the one that probably is the most at risk at the moment because of price risk. Uh, it's fighting against cheap gas more than anything else. And, right. But what you're already seeing is a reality coming through in the US that if you want to remain clean energy, you have got to keep your nuclear fleet and you've got to give them the credits. The same credits that the renewables are getting, or an equivalent, has got to be given to the nuclear fleet to stay afloat. You can't, because what you've seen in every country that's got rid of its nuclear fleet and tried to replace it, mm. its carbon emissions have actually gone up. So you look at California, you look at Germany. Interestingly, in Europe, just as an aside, yeah. if you look at the relationship between new renewable energy and power price, yeah. there's a direct correlation. Those with the highest amount of renewables in Europe have the highest power costs in Europe. But what's your expectation? That's, I think the expectation of that's going to come down, surely. Um, to a degree, but what you're also seeing is that the capacity is starting to, is flattening off. Mm. A vast amount of money has been spent in Europe uh, and in California, and they're basically plateauing out of what they can actually get in. Yeah. Part of the problem you've got here is that, look, in the middle of a sunny day, you have a lot of energy and you sell it out cheap. In the middle of a December, you've got nothing. Okay, yeah, so, so that, no, but the problem is you, that causes a pricing structure problem. Which is, yeah. okay, who fills up the gap when there's no sun? Who fills up the gap when yeah. there's no wind? That's the eternal argument, but with, with the consistency of power supply, which, with, is, which nuclear you know, can take that box. And it's clean at the same time. And it's clean, it's clean at the same time, but obviously there's, a, again, perception issues. Uh, obviously, it's why Germany's doing what it's doing and potentially fast well, doing what it's yeah, doing. It's but do you think those things... Else. Potentially, potentially. You know, you know, vote winning is important. <laughs> yes. Um, but do you think, you know, renewable and nuclear are mutually exclusive? No, I think the two need to be together. Okay. I, I think that is... There, I mean, the best model is the Swedish model. Which is what? Which is 50% nuclear and 50% renewable because they've got right. hydro. So they actually have 100% clean energy. But, but things like obviously coal power fire stations, they, they've got a really bad rap, but you know, some countries phasing them out, some countries you well, know, ramping up, but what's your view on all that? Yeah, I mean, look, if anyone wants to meet the demands going forward of the Paris Accords, etc., mm. it's very clear. And it's interesting, one of the things that occurred last year is that the WNA was actually invited in with the United Nations Energy Council. Mm -hmm. For the first time, nuclear has been involved in the world bank policy process, Interesting. which has never been allowed. Why is that? Um, simply because the World Bank and the IFCs have ever complete embargo on talking to anybody related to the nuclear and the uranium industry because of perceptions of the bomb, etc. There's a right. big difference between the bomb and nuclear generation, all right? Fine. Right. The supply side is very different. So what you've had is um, Gradual closure of the very high cost mines, yeah. uh, those that were not supported by mm -hmm. contracts. Contracts are coming off, which is also the key, which we'll show on the next mm -hmm. slide on, mm -hmm. um, we're going to go to. And you've now got to a point where the big producers, Kazakhstan and Cameco, have actually mm -hmm. pulled down production to a point where we're now in a supply deficit. Secondary supply. And that's what to help the, pr the pricing. To support the price. Right. Now, the okay. reason for that is that at the current price at under $30, nothing's economic. Yeah. Just other, you know, from a long-term yeah. development yeah, point of view. Sure. For sure. The other problem that you've got in the next 10 years is about 20% of world supply will disappear anyway, simply because those are old mines that have come into the end of their life. So the two okay. mines next door to us in Niger, yeah. they'll close up. Uh, there's a big project in Kazakhstan will close up as well, mm -hmm. Rossing Uranium. 
mm-hmm. will close up around that time period mm-hmm. as well from its existing deposits. And then even Cigar Lake was actually 2028, it's gone. So the problem that you've got is that you need a much higher price to support the continued development of projects. Yeah. So Cameco has made it very clear with their shutdown of MacArthur River, which is 18 million pounds per year and 180 million market. Mm. They said, look, this isn't coming back onto stream. This is probably the best mine in the world. It's not coming back onto stream until we see prices with a high fall in front of them. We need them back where we can contract. And you've got to remember, if you're contracting at those levels, mm. that's because you're committing to sell somebody's material Absolutely. 10 years from now. Absolutely. So you'll know that that's the price you need to keep yeah. putting capital in the ground Absolutely. to make sure it gets delivered. So, you know, when we're seeing that, it's telling you that the metal price has got to be a lot higher. That mine will stay out of production until they're comfortable, they get their contracts. At that point, you know, and that's why I'm pulling my cost down as much as I can, because mm. I'm targeting the same place. Sure. We've got to make our project work in a, a similar range. I guess you're saying that basically the market's going to find its, its, it's price, price and it's going to be managed by some of the big boys to ensure yeah. that it can work. Yeah, so. and Kazakhstan has became, basically become the OPEC of our industry. Yeah. Um, they can, they're much more flexible, um, but they've got a, a price demand. I mean, like, a, sorry, like OPEC or unlike OPEC, is, is that a formal? Uh, it's not a formal or, right. statement, but it's a statement from them that they are now value, not volume driven. Got it. Okay. Made it very clear. Okay, interesting, interesting. And they're of course list, listed here in London now. So I mean, if we look out to uh, 2035 on, on current forecasts, there's a significant gap. supply gap. Yes. And you it only gets filled by, uh, it needs price to fill it. Yeah. And we did an analysis which basically said you need about $60 yeah. to fill that gap. So you're saying, clearly, the demand would suggest that the price would have to come on tap because it's not a, it's not a commodity you can do without renewable is not going to fill the gap gas correct. isn't going to fill the gap correct okay correct okay. And, and that's one of the other issues which is just covered by this chart on the right on mm. slide seven mm-hmm. is about 80 percent of all the material board is actually under contract okay now the problem you also have coming on here is that the contract market is on, is coming to its end what they contracted back in that 06 to 011 period, yeah. those contracts are unwinding. So if you're a utility, you're like, well, where am I gonna get my metal from? I need to contract. Yeah. This is what Cameco is saying yeah. is, we'll contract, but it's not at today's price. Was, I need it up here, much higher price. Got it, okay. Now you use a phrase here, which I just wanna understand, when you say the future uncovered utility requirements. That's the what guys without contract. So you okay. haven't covered by a contract. Not covered by a contract. And this is the problem the industry has. There's about 40 million pounds is traded in the spot market. Mm. About 180 million pounds is consumed every year. In weight. Yeah, pounds of weight, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, about 50% of that spot contract trade is between traders. Just back and forth, you know. Kind right. Of. So it's not never actually gets used Got it. by anybody. It's just traded it's back It's a paper trade, got it. It's a paper trade. So that shows you the problem that these guys with their contracts have. If you're sitting out here contracting all of this material, you know, mm. 160 million pounds, mm. and you want to find your material and you don't have a contract, you only have a very small pond to go and swim in. Yeah. The problem that's happening now is that this year, Cameco, who shut their mine, which was contracted, mm. have got to find that contract somewhere else. They're going to, okay. so they need 15 up. million pounds of contracted material that to be bought out of the market and the market's only 20 million pounds. Okay. Okay, so there's a big hand going into the spot market looking for material. Interesting. There are utilities that buy on the spot market all the yeah. time as well. US utilities particularly do that. But they prefer not to, because again, they but need some of them like, certainty. Some of them like to play that way. Right. Some like the contract. But the problem is going to be, and what Cameco effectively is doing is picking up inventory that's out there. Mm. And they're finding out where the ceiling of that pricing is on the inventory and just keep pushing it out and saying, right, take some more. Who's the next guy who wants to sell some material mm-hmm. to us in what's their price deck? And so Cameco is just gonna keep moving that, securing their metal, they're holding the market in supply deficit and they're eating the inventory that's at that's the same time. So it's a double play on both sides. Double play, but they're, they're in control. They're in control of, it. of the pricing potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting, interesting. Okay. And so where we sit in all of this, which is kind of covered by slide eight, is effectively mm-hmm. when the price recovers, yeah. We'll bring in the first project, we'll bring in Maduela. That's about 2.7 million pounds per annum. We're, we're assuming that we would be able to go into construction by the end of this year. That's our assumption. If we started Currently. today. 
if we start today getting on with our, we're already moving for the process. So we've already started the feasibility, final feasibility study. Sure, sure. We're already dealing with the debt. We're assuming that the price that we need to be able to offtake contract for our project will be achievable within the next 12 months. Okay. Okay. If that is the case, then we will make the call at the end of this year to go into construction. Okay. It's price driven. Once that's gone in, then we can bring Matanga in after that. We wouldn't try and build two mines at the same time. Okay, I understand if that helps. And then we have Phileo, which is sitting out there as well. It's an option. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so in terms of just on Phileo, I know it's a sort of um, third arm to your story here, but how much effort, time, money, etc., has been spent on that? That had about $50 million spent on it. It's to got date. PFS, internal PFS that we year to date, and it's got 30 million pounds of uranium in the ground. Right. It's got a very interesting silver copper credit that comes with a 70 gram ton silver right it needs to be expanded out from a drilling perspective but um, that's that's in the but, background at the moment yeah, yeah. you're doing it sequentially doing sequentially step right. through this thing okay as makes a logical okay. sense okay well let's get into the first project then yeah uh, the first one is uh, the cornerstone really this is Madawella. it's next to all the infrastructure in this year yep so it's next to the Arriva mines powers there roads there waters there people are there it's an, they've been mining since 1971, so all the skill sets are there. Right, okay. Um, How many people do you employ? Uh, we'll be looking at about 500. Oh, so significant employer yeah. locally. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm saying. Um, so it starts at 21 years. Life of mine starts at 21 yeah. years, okay. Yeah, it could be substantially bigger. We start with an open pit for the first seven to eight years, then we go underground. Interesting, what's that do on the, the IRR then? Assuming initially it's gonna be very profitable. Uh, well, it actually, the, the average out, the underground is very easy once we go in. It's right. a room and pillar operation 100 metres below the surface in a flat oh, lying ore body. Okay. So, okay, it, so I mean, it's not one of these under, underground yeah. ore bodies. It looks like this one is one of the development. Yeah. No, <laughs> this is, you know, just basically mining out a river. Uh, and, you know, the, the main underground ore body is seven kilometres long by three kilometres right. wide. Right. Okay. It's vast. Um, and about one and a half meters thick. So we just mine it out, it seems like okay. uh, One thing that's interesting here though, is that we start with the open pit, but because we've got so much exploration upside, mm. all we'll do is when we start the mine, just turn the rigs back on again and start looking for the next open pit, which Drawing is it. Okay. it out. And it's okay. probably to the south of us because that's the way the structures work. But as you say, let's, let's do what we know. Yes. So there's enough money to be made there. And if well, that- Once we're making cash, we can start turning the rigs off and redesign everything. For example, in the PFS, what we've assumed is you start with the open pit and you go in the underground. Mm. Actually, the way the ore body works is actually you can ac access the underground from the open pit. So okay. if you could find a second open pit, you'd start the second open pit up and then you'd redevelop your underground so again, your open pit. Potentially that helps the economics. Absolutely. Right, okay. So we've got a cash cost here at about $25 a pound, capital of 360. Yeah. So what we're doing at the moment, which is kind of covered on the next slide, mm -hmm. on slide 10, is, is actually going through that optimization process. So things like under the current PFS, we assumed that we were going to build the process plant on top of the underground because mm -hmm. most of the volume comes out of the underground. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just move the process plant to the open pit, which is 10k south, start there, mm. deal with it later in the future, because this is opt the, the, the FS is all about optimizing the debt period, not 21 years, because the 21 years is going to change considerably yeah. for us, because yeah. we can go and drill. So we're looking at relooking the process route design, anything we can do to change that, we can bring in solar hybrid power, rather than off-grid power, because it's a lot cheaper, mm -hmm. those kind of things. We're looking at the debt structuring, so the Medea Capital guys, these are the ex gen team that did Paladin, they did Makuja River, uh, they did Extract. So this is the guys that did most of the yep. debt financing for Uranium projects in the last time. The Hulan Loki guys, actually the same guys, same stock gen team, which is why we're using oh, that. The project actor, we're not- So and just, just in terms of the, yeah. uh, the, I know you have sort of touched upon it earlier, but with regards to, um, timing around the offtake. We'll be looking to bring that together with the debt. I mean, the whole rational reason the debt yeah. guys aren't gonna come without the offtake, the yeah. offtake guys aren't gonna come without the debt, and nobody will come without the equity. 
So, well, yeah, well, equity's the... But, the equity, but it, you don't need to deal with the equity until later in the game because it's the shortest path at the end of the day. Mm. Once you can show that the debt guys are moving towards where they're happy... So what's the, what's the total? So we're looking at 360 capital, yeah. which about 240 will be debt. 220, 240 will be debt. 240 debt. So the rest yeah, is equity. equity. And you're expecting to get their equity where? That will decide when we get closer to the time. So, right. is that going to be a strategic offtaker? But if I, yeah, but if I look at your some of your existing shareholders, it could come. Who knows? I, I look, I'm not going to. I don't know okay. until we get further down the track and Got we it. go and approach the existing shareholders and say, "Do you want to play this, mm. or does somebody from the Chinese guys want to come in it?" You know, Niger has a strong relationship with Saudi Arabia. You know, they okay. So UAE, it's, it's, it's unknown. Who knows? It's an unknown. Who knows? I mean, these guys are yeah. all looking for okay. supply. It could be, who knows? Understood. Once you get the, the debt and off taking place, but, I guess But the key question that yeah. a lot of people get confused of, they yeah. look at the dilution effect today on today's share price. Well, no. I'm not raising it on today. Yeah. I will, Understood. we'll be looking to raise equity at a point when uranium price is up where we need it. Yeah. And I can show you I've got the debt. And you've got to be a person. And I've got an off take sure. structure already sitting there and it's like, you're coming in protected already on the. It's a bunch of catalysts which should have an effect on share activity in some way. Correct. Okay. Exactly. Great. Okay. So let's let's look at the second project. The second one's a very simple project. This yeah. is Matanga in Zambia. Yeah. This is a very simple open pit heat operation. Right. One of the things that's interesting about this one, and it has much lower grades than in Zambia. Yeah, and it's and a lot, but and also lower is, recovery rates. Yeah, so because it's heat leach operation, okay, rather than the tank leach operation, eleven years, but very low capital. Yeah. So the all-in cost of these two projects is identical. Okay. They're about $36, $37 a pound. Right. So they're almost exactly the same. Okay. The difference is this project in Zambia has an acid consumption of only about 10 kgs a ton. Right. What's that, mean? What's that mean? That's how much acid for every ton of rock we okay. will consume. So and that's quite good. Acid. You're saying that's quite good? Niger is 70. Okay. It is quite good. Yes. It's 10% of our costs. Excellent. And the other difference in Zambia? Yeah. I'm in the Copper Belt country. There's a lot yeah. of copper so you get, you've producing got some acid. Credits coming up for you, potentially? We, we don't get any copper credits because we don't get any copper, but what we will get is cheap acid and lots of it. Got it. And okay. it's a very Understood. it's a very low strip ratio as well. This thing starts with like a one-to-one -one strip ratio. All the infrastructure is there yeah. for it as well. Yeah. Now again, 11 year life mine, we have three pro this is based on three projects here. Yeah. Deposits and then two deposits about 30, 40 Ks out the road. Yeah. We own the permit, mine permit between. Okay. Okay. All the radon work, the trench work says, please grill me. Right. Uh, this can be expanded a lot. So while it starts at 11 years, which is more than sensible for a project, this thing could go out to 20 years. But you're not going to start spending too much money on this no. until you've got project number one Two well underway. Until the market moves up as well. We've obviously, once the market moves along and the metal prices, we've got to start moving all our projects along. Okay. The biggest driver, of course, is going to be moving Manuela first yeah. because of the main driver. This one needs to get going as well to be ready that when we want to get started, it's ready to go as well. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Thank you. But it's a very, very simple project. So here's the section which I usually like to get into some level of detail because yeah. I think it's the difference between success and failure. You know, I've seen great teams make very ordinary projects hugely successful, yeah. and I've seen very ordinary teams make great projects fail. Yeah. So tell us a bit about yourself. Yep. what you do and what each of the team members does and how they contribute to creating value. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I'll say one thing up front, our team is still very small at the moment. Mm -hmm. We keep it that way because we like to keep our costs down and mm -hmm. I don't need to have a, a whole team of engineers. Okay. One of the benefits you have in Gobi, because I'm actually an engineer by background, so I'm a mining engineer from Campbell School of Mines. Okay. Uh, when it was in Campbell. <laughs> I remember. It's now moved. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been in this industry over 30 years now, I'm right. sorry to say. Um, so I, my first job was actually working at Rossing Uranium. Right, um, okay. I started production in open pit production. I went into the planning department there. So I went through that whole process of so getting the African into, mining Yeah, and then I worked to the Northern Transvaal, which is yeah. now called Mpumalanga or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was the chief mining engineer for the first open pit platinum mine. I was there when it was a field and we started up from scratch. Yeah. Have things uh, changed over the years in Africa? Uh, yeah, some good, some bad, I think. Okay. You know, it's Africa, I think, still going through its troubles, um, yeah. you know, figuring out where it wants to go forward. Um, but, you know, there's, I think the one thing about Africa is there's just so much opportunity still. Mm. You know, I read an interesting article several months ago mm. just showing how the North American company, gold companies particularly, 
who are staying in the safe environments are struggling to keep their resources. Yeah. Build them. Whereas you look at the African companies like Rangold, etc. Yeah. Resources just growing all the time. Yeah. They're having to take the risk. I'd agree with that. But they can get find the material they want by taking those risks. Yeah, I agree. And, with that. and that's one of the things for Africa. So I, I went into the platinum industry for a while in the Northern Transvaal. Um, right. So I did that until mm -hmm. we got that mine up and running. We came in substantially under budget. I was partly because we redesigned the mine. I redesigned the mine to make it work better. So your focus seems to be around optimization. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, look, I'm an engineer and I enjoy the engineering side of it. So I did that and I worked as a consultant, yeah. owning my own consulting company with a friend of mine, right. doing mine design for other people. Right. Uh, at that point, because the guy I was working with, I'd been working with for a very long time, I kind of said, look, I've got to go be a big boy and work by myself. Mm. So I went to work for JCI, the old JCI, yeah, yeah. and I was doing M&A and projects work for them. Mm -hmm. um, JCI then died um, at the time I was there. Um, there was an empowerment deal that just went wrong. Uh, the wrong people were mm. brought in to do mm. the empowerment deal and it collapsed very quickly as a company. So I then went to work for HSBC right. uh, as a platinum analyst. I was a rated platinum analyst. I was top three within 10 months taking that job on. Uh, why? Because I looked at things in a very different way. I looked at the financing. I'm not an accountant, but it was... You and I guess you had boots on the ground. Yeah, and I understood that. how the industry yeah. worked. Okay. So I kind of, they brought me over to do the mining houses. So I was then part of a global number one global team mm. here at HSBC that went to JP Morgan. So I, that was really useful because it kind of showed you how the money side of this works. You could be an engineer and you, you fixate as an engineer on this, that and the other, but you actually don't understand how the market it's, works. It's kind of an interesting point actually, because again, the number of junior miners that we've invested into, certainly uh, you find teams that are either very technical in, in terms of on the ground, or they're very financial, or they're completely promotional, but very few juniors can afford to have all those skill sets in house. So I guess having exposure to both finance yeah. and mining directly on your know, bits on the ground must have been hugely beneficial. Well, it does, and you know, we were talking before as well. Having been an analyst for the big mining houses, mm. you can't get that. But once you get into the junior side, mm. you suddenly realise the importance of market cap. There's no point in talking to you know, BlackRock when you're a $50 million market company. Absolutely. It's not uh, well, wasting and, your time. And likewise, I'd argue it's, uh, I think, but, yeah. it's quite interesting when you see management teams who come from, say, a Rio Tinto only experience with no junior experience, expecting it to be exactly the same. And, no. and even myself, sort of having invested in sort of institutional side and then come down to junior money, it's a very different world. Correct. It is. So I did that analyst work for seven years and then I decided I needed a real job. Mm. So I work, went to work in Russia um, for Oleg Deripaska. Yeah. I went and joined his basic element group and I was running 8% of the world's ferromoly out of some very, very old yeah. mines there. Yeah. And then I took on the timber business, which was really hard. Mm. I did that until 2008 and then I went into the exploration business in South America, was mm -hmm. Brazil and Ecuador. Mm -hmm. Then I did underground gold mining um, in Canada um, and in Peru. Um, so I kind of cut my teeth on underground mining. Okay. I was spending really tough, tough project that one. I was spending eight weeks on site, literally underground. Um, Were you learning from your successes or your failures? I, um, I was learning from the failures at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was a my one thing I learned is that restarts are really tough things to yeah. do. And when you've come into a project that's already struggling, yeah. you have got to work damn hard to try and make yeah. it work. And that one was just interesting. Became too difficult to try and. That's good insight. Yeah, you've got to battle it out, but you've got to commit to battling it. You know, don't, yeah. and don't as a CEO expect someone else to do it. You've got to go do it yourself. Yeah, and there are times that you actually have to spend time underground and, and, and not managing this remotely from no. twelve thousand miles away. No. Yeah, I, I, I again, couldn't agree more. You know, uh, and, and do it. So that, that's kind of my background. So interesting. This yeah, opportunity came out, and I was like, yep. Yeah. You know, I, and a lot of the work that we do, I, I spend a lot of time even now scouring through technical magazines and things, looking mm. for ideas. Mm. You know, I'm looking, I mean, even now I'm doing something down with the guys in Cornwall on a, a, a new gravity system to saying, how can we apply that to what we've got? Mm. I've had consultants always say to me, you know, but it's not proven in the world. I'm like, guys, if I'm just gonna use proven technology, the only difference between me and every other project is my grade, mm. end of story. Mm. You have got to reach outside and see Unless you are willing to take that chance, you won't differentiate. Have you, have you seen that approach work for you in terms of looking for this edge, as it were? Uh, yeah, I mean, it just simple things can change it, though. But unless you actually go and look for it, I mean, we've seen it on this project. 
Oh, right. Okay, tell oh, us about that. Oh, we, when we started, we were looking at high acid consumption. Mm. We were looking at the, when the original design started, the guys were assuming we were going to grind it mm-hmm. and then just do a straight acid leach. I said, why? I've got to truck stuff 2,000 kilometers to get here. Yeah. Why do I want to truck steel balls? Yeah. You know, those are really expensive things to transport for yeah. no real value. So we took this and we brought in, we've done a lot of work on radiometric sorting, which mm-hmm. has been proven now to work. Mm-hmm. But we look more importantly at that all of the uranium is actually trapped in the cement that holds the sand together. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our focus is on upgrading this ore. So how can you get that uranium out of that cement? Because mm-hmm. you can screen the sand away and throw it away. I don't want the okay. sand anywhere near the acid tanks if I can avoid it. Mm-hmm. And that's where all our process design has been looking at, which is right. why I'm now looking at gravity. Because once you break the cement apart, yeah. the density of your cement is about 2 to 2.6 kg per cube, uh, um, ton per cube. But if you look at uranium, it's like 8. Right. So I've got a massive density difference here. Yeah. When I've yeah. done all the work to break it, why yeah. not look at that? So this is the kind of thing you've got to... Some of it you try, and yeah. you're like, no, nah, just doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you don't try... But you, again, you're looking to shave costs. Here. Always. That's the... and, and, and not just shave costs, it's to make it more robust right. as well. In what way would you mean? You've got, I mean, this project is in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Right, okay. It's got to yeah. be a project that's robust and works in the environment you are in mm. and will fulfill the requirements that you need in that place. So make got it, it robust. So, wait, so who supports you technically then? So technically, the, the, t- the key guy is um, a guy actually who works for SRK, but a guy called Rob Bauer. Okay. A um, lot of background um, in the industry. He's consulted for people like um, the Kazakhs yeah. uh, on their IPO. He does a lot of work in ISR. Yeah. He's worked for most of the um, uranium companies at one stage or another, yeah. uh, but also multi-commodity um, and a long history and background. Okay. Um, so I use his background a lot, particularly because he complements me by being more of a chemist and metallurgist. I'm the more of the mining engineer. Got it. Okay. Uh, but I know enough to be where's he, where's he based? Uh, here in Cardiff. Right, okay. So, um, yeah, so, and travels around the world. Right, okay. Uh, Jerome is my chief geologist. As you can see from here, a very long history in uranium yeah. uh, across the world. Uh, knows its industry background, backwards from an exploration and geology point of view. So I've got a really key guy there yeah. to take us forward. And what's, he, what's his actual practical hands-on approach to this? Is he, where's he based? Um, he's actually Mauritian. Um, surprisingly, he's currently in the jet at the moment. But he's, so, he's over in it. So he he's actively oh, on yeah. this project, not sitting doing it. No, 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 no from I've, a computer I've, screen. No, no. Okay, another um, hands on. He goes to all of the assets all of the time. Right. And this is how we tend to operate: is that he will go in, he'll sit down with the team, come up with a plan on the ground, work with them, but leave them to get on with it. So, what, so what's his brief then? Is his brief right? I need you to save me costs, increase productivity. His, what, what's his, his key area is actually on the exploration side. Right. And that's okay. really where I need him to know. Tell me what to do next on these projects, right. exploration wise. What can I do to get my best bang for the buck okay. going forward uh, and understand where we're going to go to next? Okay. So that, that's really pure geology. Okay. Uh, Rob's really on the technical side, on the projects, the process side. You know, what do we do from there? Right, okay. And then you, I noticed a very strong, experienced board, uh, board yep. starting with uh, obviously Mr. Friedland. Yep, obviously um, the name says it all. Yeah. Um, said that Robert, uh, geologist, he's the founder of the company. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, he saw that opportunity right up front. Yeah. Um, he's obviously got very strong contacts out there in the industry as well and in the investment industry. So, so. a geological engineer. Yeah. Uh, but also. A, bit, a very well-established businessman. Yeah. Made money for a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. And then we've got David Cates, um, CEO of Denison. Um, very pragmatic as a board member, and an accountant as well, so. So that's um, you, they're obviously a major shareholder, but yeah. is he fairly active here, or do you dip in and out as a member? Um, what I would say with David is that, you know, when we have board issues to deal with, mm. he's very active. Right. And, you know, he will. He's one of those guys, particularly with his accounting background. Will you know? He's not on the audit committee. Yeah. But he will thoroughly read all the documentation and give you comments on it. So very strong. 
Uh, Tony Urbanente um, was appointed by Ivanhoe onto the board. Mm. His background is legal, but he's also predominantly does a lot of work fundraising out in the market as well. Not for Goviex, but for his own. So he gives us a lot of flavor about where we should be looking for the longer term strategy right. to take forward um, yep. and brings a different insight to it. Okay. Matthew Lexia uh, is a lawyer, so we use his legal skills when we need them on okay. documentation and stuff. Yeah. Chris Wallace uh, is debt. He's a debt financier by background. Uh, he joined the company after he'd actually become an investor himself. So he was introduced and is a very pragmatic yeah. guy from governance as well. Very strong right. on governance and how we operate. Ben Wallace almost goes without saying who Ben Wallace is. I mean, but for those who don't know, he is the founder of Semaphore Gold, which is one of the most you know pretty yeah. best developed gold companies at the time. Yeah, uh, has an incredible contact range across West Africa. I bet. And, yeah. and that is the key. And he's now in Algold and Windiga, which is his energy yeah. one, and he's a company called Earth Alive, which does fertilizers as well. One. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, whenever we need to deal with African governments, mm. then was our, our go-to man. And if it's not him, okay. he knows somebody who knows somebody who can make sure that we're talking to the right people at the right level. That's interesting, the government contact, of course. Oh, it's key. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, and a lot of the things, uh, you know, that we have learned, and particularly, you know, and we, I, I force on my team the whole time, and the way we did change things is that, you know, when we took on some of the assets from other people, the Canadian company liked to deal with the government stuff. And I'm mm. like, no guys, yeah, you deal with it. Yeah, you, you know, you in Zambia should be in the mines ministry's office all the time. Yeah, I agree with you that. Know, go in and see them, just say hi. And just tell them presence on the ground. I, you've I, got I to tell them where you are the whole time. Do not. I do not want to hear that the mines ministry doesn't know where we are on our project. Yeah, that no, doesn't I, work. I, I absolutely agree with that. And we've yeah. had some bitter experience last year of a company we've invested into who didn't do that. Yes, and uh, have regretted it. Oh, absolutely. And we do yeah. that in, in both in all of our countries. Yeah. That's exact. The face of Goviex in Africa is actually the local guys. Yeah, my job is to make sure that everything's controlled from above yep. and I turn up when I need to turn up. Yeah. Uh, and then Robert Hansen. Um, Again. Yeah. Well known in Africa. Well known. Yeah. I mean, what I notice here though, is that you've got a finance guy, a lawyer, another lawyer, a finance guy, an accountant, an investor. It's very much about how your business should be run because it says to me, you believe that technically you are where you need to be between uh, Govind, yourself. Yeah, and don't forget, Benoit has actually Rob. built a company. Yeah. The gold mining company. Yeah. So he brings enough understanding of how to build a company yeah. himself in the industry. Right. Um, you know, and, and the next stage for us is going to be about building that technical team up under Well, the so that, I guess that's my question here is, you know, obviously you're at the stage you're at now, but to move forward and if you're going to get into production, I guess there will be changes in terms of the board. Yeah, we'll see changes NEDs. across everywhere and we'll have to build up a technical team. Right. And not just a technical team, logistics, procurement, all of these yeah. things, but I don't need them now. Fine. I don't want and you to want have, to keep the cost down. I, 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 I get it, but you, you're aware? Absolutely. And you know that's coming down the line. And it will probably be here in London because it just makes sense. I mean, there's no point in trying to set up a whole mining team out of Vancouver when yep. the projects are here in, um, in this part of the world. It begs the question. I think I know the answer, Mr. Friedland. Mr. Friedland is the answer why you're TSX and not on AIM. Uh, yes and no. Um, we were on the CSE. We went oh, to the right. CSE originally as because it was a cheap option sure. when we first did it. And then actually when we did the transaction with Denison, mm. we actually reviewed both sides. Right. The, T, the AIM basically was going to cost us half a million pounds. Yep. And it cost us $11,000 to yep. go to the TSXV. Did it? Yes. That's interesting. It wouldn't cost you that now. No, no. The, the TSXV approached us and said, because yeah. you remember the CSE follows the same rules yeah, yeah, as the TSXV. I know. Same set of rules. And they said, you're already doing all of the stuff you need to do, all, of, all the public disclosure. In fact, they yeah. do a monthly report yeah. on the CSE, which you don't have to do anywhere else. Yeah. Quarterly financial no, reporting. No, 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 no. And so it was a case of, do we want to spend half a million pounds? Yeah. Or $11,000? Yeah, I think we know the answer. Correct. Yes. So, so let's, let's, so let's get into some of the numbers around the, the business. Got the updated version for you. Thank you very much, <laughs> sir. So we obviously know who some of the main shareholders yeah. are. Um, I mean, so again, begs the question in terms of... Of that, this, it's about 50-50. Uh, 
Um, retail and institutional. From where? Oh, geez. Um, pretty evenly spare, spread um, Europe and the US and Canada. Europe. I've got a lot of European retail. Um, I've got a lot of European. We, get, we raise quite a lot of money when we do our fundraisers out of Europe. When you Actually, say Europe, where we oh, Germany? Germany, um, Switzerland, Scandinavia, okay. London. And London. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All of those. And um, so, and then, you know, we, we, we actually, what is interesting, and it's quite an interesting insight to us, we, in 2016, 2017, I got an OTCQB listing mm -hmm. and I got the DTC eligibility issues dealt with. Okay. Now, that's important from a far US point of view because sure. it's all the disclosure for those that don't understand why we bother doing that but it it allows um, a lot more brokers to access the information mm. and trade your stock by mm. doing that also made this crest compliant so we can actually go to people's ISAs in the UK yeah so what is interesting is that we also trade a lot of volume now through the OTCQB okay. um, probably about a 25% of our shares trade on the OTCQB so it's not a dead exchange which shows how many people are actually trading on the US market for us that is interesting. Yeah, so we're fairly liquid. Uh, well, we trade. So who, so who covers you in the in North America? No one. Nobody. We not have covered. No, but we're still getting twenty five percent of your. We don't have an analyst. I just do a lot of work. Very good. <laughs> Marketing. I'm impressed. So market cap today is sitting just around yeah, fifty six. Yeah, Canadian. Canadian. Um, we got a, just over one million dollars of cash, and we have. What's, owed, what's your burn? When's that going to last? Uh, hang on, we've got two point eight million dollars to be paid back to us this year, which will all be paid back by June, as well. So that paid back by um, a company called Linkwood. We did the transaction last year, which saw us remove an eight, um, a ten million dollar loan yeah. for four and a half million dollars, and it was a uranium linked loan. So we took it out at half. So they, are they good for this? So they yes, they're good for it. Okay. And we've confirmed the repayment clause. And so when was that for? Um, sorry. When's it due? Um, it'll all be paid back by June. It's done in tranches starting in February. Okay, fair through. So okay. it's not, we're e not waiting. equitable tranches. Yeah, to end almost. June. Yeah. Okay, interesting. There's, there's a press release on it right now. Fantastic. Okay, we'll we'll just check that out. Thank you. Shares, you've got a bunch of warrants. Uh, any warrants coming? Yeah, uh, if you jump forward all the way to page 25, because it's a slide I, I get asked for. Okay, so let's, let's, let's talk through some of these um, Yeah, warrants. I mean, the, the interesting bunch, it's got a whole bunch of warrants due this year um, by the 10th of June. Mm. Um, they have a call on them if the share price remains up over 20 cents Canadian for more than Well, I've seen it. There's a few. There's, a, there's a greater than 24 cents, 20 cents, and... Yeah. Uh, what is this one? The, first, the, the clear tranches, the ones to be interested in are obviously the ones in the, these four. Yeah. yeah, because uh, actually just those ones, the first three. Just the first three, the first okay. Three. So they yeah, the are in the, they're in the money. Um, they're kind of on the edge at the moment. Yeah. Um, actually, they're out of the money as of today because the US share price is about 11, 12 cents. Dropped, okay. Yeah, it fell. We had a bit of a hammering over. So now is a great time to buy GobiX. So what was With the whole you, market. You, so what, market. You had a bit of hammering, why? No particular reason. The whole market got hammered. So most of the uranium stocks got thumped over Christmas. It's a good time to buy. It's a great time to buy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Those warrants potentially coming through, which will deliver four nearly. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Assuming they get exercised, so we'll wait and see. Got it. Got it. Okay. Fine. So we'll, we're watching those as well at the same time, but that provide a lot of the fun. That kind of explains that. Um, yeah. And then the rest are, are tranched up. We try and keep them quite short dated and we try and have them with escalating prices on them so that, you know, enforce, force people to try and erect them. So what you're saying on this basis is that you're not, you're not looking to go back to the market raise any money? Not in the short soon. term, no. Okay, fine. We obviously will as we move forward. If the market sure. gets stronger, then and we're going to need to be more aggressive on where we are on the project. Sure, but there's no dilution at the moment. No, um, not planned at the moment. Okay, and we've talked about some of the catalyst events coming through. Um, so, well, I mean, really, let's get the back. other slide, that, you know, really the final slide in, in this discussion is slide 15. Which is again, um, you know, that that that's the key story for me from a value point of view. Which is what I've tried to do on this slide is really just show there are two groups here, and this right. is where we are different. The, the the chart on the left hand side is the producers. Yep. The chart on the right hand side is the developers. Right. GoVX is sitting as an undervalued developer in its own right. Now, yep. there's many reasons for some of that. You could argue, you know, next gen efficiency are all the high grade North American stocks. 
The difference between us and them, I would argue, is that I'm permitted. You know, as I, I sort of say to people, you can own a Ferrari or you can own a Ford Mondeo. This Ford Mondeo will take you shopping. This Ferrari will stay in its garage and won't do anything for a very long period of time. The re that is the reality of where you are. This is potential to be a cash generator. Right. The other thing I would say, you know, while we don't develop this company and we're not developing this company to be a takeout story, we're here to be a builder. Okay. But you never know in the world when things happen. Interesting, in the last cycle, the three biggest transactions all happened to be in Africa. The right. smallest was $1.2 billion for a company with 100 million pounds of uranium ground, which is Tanzania, which is Makuja River, uranium one. Interesting. The other two were 2.2 and 2.4 billion dollar transactions for companies about our size. So what's happening here? I mean, in, in terms of a multiple on share price, I mean, people are achieving what? Well, at that time, they were um, you know, the, the sector was different back in 2011, 2012. So I'm not trying to say things okay. make you know you got to put this in. But even if we got half the value from where we are now, mm. that's a big step up. The point I'm really making is don't be afraid of Africa. The reason those transactions took place is because mm. the guys who came after those projects, which are the Chinese and the Russians and the French, mm. wanted to control supply. Mm. They can control supply out of the African projects. They can own 100% of them. Mm. In Canada, there's the 49% rule. You can't yeah. own more than 49%. Yeah. So yeah, that's why they came to these projects. They were more concerned about getting their hands on physical uranium supply. Yeah. And we're seeing that to continuing. CNNC's recent transaction to buy Rossing Uranium at the end of its life. Okay, okay so, See, so, so as, as a developer, you're, again, you're but, saying you'd argue you're underpriced. Correct. The other point that I would make is I'm one of the few companies that can go from the right-hand side to the left-hand side in this cycle. Most of these guys, five years from now, will still be developers. GovX is probably going to be a producer, and that has a natural re-rate coming with it at the same time. Okay. So that is the difference between us and our peers. And there is, a, you know, this has been done before. Paladin did in the last cycle. Mm. They went from between 2005 and 2007 from seven cents to seven dollars. Mm. What did they do? Built two mines in Africa. So. Okay. Okay. Right. And maybe just the last couple of slides here. Um, very much what it says on the first slide. <laughs> yeah. I'm a great believer of tell people it, tell it again, and tell it to them again. I, so, I mean, really. Big fan. So, you, so, so the story is strong shareholder base with, you know, out there. But not necessarily active at the moment, but, not active, but, but, but could be. But it shows you the kind of assets that we've got, that these are the kind of companies that got involved. See, so with the right names. Correct. Okay, got it. We've got experience management. We've kind we've of done it that. all over the place. We've got a really big resource. Yeah. Okay. We've got potential, a lot of exploration upside. Yep. We've got those mine permits, which are key. So if the market is recovering, it's that ability to turn that into cash flow and build mines and get that re-rate coming through from it. Mm -hmm. Those are your big tri triggers here. Thanks for running through the presentation. I mean, it'd be great if you can also highlight where you think you're creating real value for investors. I mean, where you're talking about being undervalued, okay, um, in, in terms of the developer, yeah. perhaps even a re-rate as a producer. Um, you, the market is depressed. You've, you've, taken a bit of a hit recently along with a lot of other people. Yep. Um, so you would argue that share price is, is less than it should be. Yep. Um, but what are you doing to create incremental value in 2019? Well, part of it's doing what I'm doing here today. It's all about getting exposure for the company and explaining the story to, mm. to people. The rest of it is, again, is what we've done there, which is you know that ability to add value to the projects themselves. My job ultimately is to be able to make sure that when this market recovers, this company is ready to build its assets. Right. That's what my job is. And the ways to do that is effectively bring down the incentive price that I need to get this thing built. You know, this project cannot be a project that needs $50. Let's make it a $45 price that gets this project going. That's what adds value because if you can get this project up and running, and I can get the cost down lower than the $25 and I'm running mm. at that price, I really don't care what happens after that because this mm. is a long-term project that's going for 21 years to start with, mm. has the cash generation to build. I've de-risked this company generating cash flow going forward. That's how we add value here is basically turning these assets into producing mines. Okay. So, and it's, it, again, one, one, one final question. In terms of... Um, the audience you're talking to today, 
It's a yeah. retail investor yeah. audience, high net worth, family offices. I mean, what would what do you want them to go away thinking about GoVX and indeed yourself? Uh, I, I, you know, I think the th- things you've got to go away as an investor to think about is one: Do you believe the market? That's yeah. the key. If you, you believe, believe in uranium, them, you've got yeah. to believe in the uranium story and get your head behind that and why yeah. it's different now. Yeah. And why we see the growth going forward. And I think that get behind, understand that Cameco story. That's the key. That's what's driving this market at the moment to start with. Why it's different because mm-hmm. that wasn't there before. From a GoVX point of view, you can see we're a product company here that has got a massive resource. We've got projects, but more importantly, they're permitted projects. Yep. That means a lot in our industry. If it's going to take you six years to a permanent project, think of the dilution those companies have still got to go through for the next six years. And mm. They can't do anything. And then they'll start the, the, the construction phase after that. So you're probably talking 10 years before some of those companies ever see the light of day. Mm-hmm. Don't be scared of Africa. Africa's a great place to operate. It's mm. pragmatic. It understands what it's doing. It's out to create wealth for, as, as a, a continent. So... And there's 54 countries in Africa, so don't cover the whole of Africa with one paintbrush. Doesn't make any sense. From our technical team and myself, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. Mm. We've done it before. We know what we're doing out there. That's great. Okay. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Um, for that recap on your story, we look forward to hearing more in the coming Absolutely. weeks and months. Always a pleasure. And um, we will hope to see you soon. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks again. Take care. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you wanna see more insightful, in-depth, honest, and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching, and we look forward to seeing you again soon.